This is mission.org. This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. On the one hand, the first pillar is really knowing relationships, building relationships, knowing them inside out, and being a trusted uh, counsel and companion. On the other hand, is also understanding culture. And this is where I think my own personal interest stemming from my background in music, understanding what's actually in the cultural zeitgeist and how to stay relevant in that conversation. And often you will find brands' biggest challenges is actually how do they keep up with what's happening in culture? And that's the biggest proposition within Virtue. Are some brands missing a key factor that will help them grow substantially? Our guest today is Suresh Raj, Global Chief Growth Officer at Virtue Worldwide, a creative agency that functions within Vice Media Group. Suresh, whose business development experience with stints at Ogilvy and Vision 7 Communications, suggests that keeping a thumb on the culture pulse is essential to grow a brand. Tune in to hear how his incredible boy band experience actually prepared him for his role today and for some helpful advice on how to pitch campaign ideas to clients. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. There's an area I want to start with you, and I, and I think it would just make more sense to go there because I want to understand where this spark for you started around business around creativity? Like what was the thing that really kicked off this beautiful journey that you've had that has taken you now to virtue, uh, which we'll get into, but where, where did this begin for you? Cause you've clearly latched onto some magic and have ridden this wild thing, uh, into some fantastic experiences. And, and so where did it start for, for Suresh? Well, the truth is it didn't start in business at all. So my real passion, my real, real passion is music. So I'm a singer-songwriter, uh, and I play by ear, so I never studied it. So I play by ear, I've written music, and I've produced a number of albums and studios, etc. But I was born and brought up, so the context is I was born and brought up in Malaysia to very Asian, Middle Eastern parents. And when you come from my culture, music is not an option for a career. And so growing up in that environment, it was either you're a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or an engineer. Those are the four paths laid out. I was also a studious kid, and so I did well in school, but I did everything by the book. And 
sort of moonlighted during school days on in a music band. We released a couple of albums, etc. But my parents thought that was a hobby. So literally the day I graduated with my first degree, I was in London at this point, I'd moved to London. MTV was pulling a boy band together, the first ever reality TV music show ever in history in 1996. And they were putting a pan-European boy band together and it was a live open call audition in London. And, and I didn't tell my parents. So I didn't tell my parents because I had done what they asked me to do, secured a solid degree, did the education route. Now this is on my terms. So I did. I went to audition to join the band. I didn't even have a TV. I'd have no access to MTV. And I didn't know. As soon as I auditioned, I went home and Little did I know that the live audition was being telecast for about two and a half months and people were voting in, Consume, sort of uh, listeners were voting in, etc. But two and a half months later, they called the flat I was living in uh, and announced I was one of the five guys that got into the band. This is the first ever reality TV show. And then we had a camera followers for the first six to nine months of my music career. And I think at this point, my parents realized, mm, this guy probably does have a bit of talent, having just like, you know, gone on. And it was absolute sort of a road to stardom because overnight we had this camera crew, we were traveling around the world performing. I was sitting on a sofa with John Landis, who produced and directed Michael Jackson's Thriller and Black and White Video, for example. I was launched on the same stage as the Spice Girls. Wow. Uh, so the Spice Girls had already released their second or third number one. We were sharing dressing rooms, and I don't know whether the name Robbie Williams would ring any bells here in the US, but Robbie Williams is a huge singer. He was part of Take That, which is a big group. And this is in mid-90s, so you can imagine it was huge. And it was tremendously amazing. The experience was wonderful, but I had no money. I saw no money whatsoever because we were product packaged, slapped like a lunchbox and shipped around. And at the end of a fantastic performance, stay at a hotel or a whatever, I get chauffeured back to my little bed sit above a Greek restaurant and I still had no salary. And so I did that for a good year and a bit and realized I, wasn't, I couldn't live because I literally just didn't have money to pay rent, but it was a great opening. I tried to go solo, so I signed a couple of solo deals, still didn't make any money in that, but massive exposure. I was constantly on TV, etc. And that's when I realized, God, I, I need to live. I need to live and I need to make some money. And I realized that the music industry was so hard, but what I loved about the music industry was the creative side of it, because we had a lot of creative agencies and PR agencies in particular who were surrounding us and building our media profile. So we were constantly shipped in front of journalists and we're doing media interviews, et cetera. I went, God, it'd be really nice to be behind that side of it. That was super interesting. And I thought, well, if, if I can't do the glitzy life of being a recording artist, I wouldn't mind doing that. That feels a little glitzy as well. And it'll probably pay my bills. And so after some time, I, I had deferred a place to do my MBA. I went to do my MBA and completed it. And the irony of it all, uh, whilst doing the MBA, and there's a bit of an anecdotal bit, I was sitting in the, the uh, lunch hall eating my ham sandwich and Kit Kat and Walker's Crisp packet. And on the Walker's Crisp packet was Baby Spice. And like they had just done a massive sponsorship deal. And I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, a year ago I was on stage with her and today she's worth 25 million pounds a piece. The Spice Girls, right? And they'd just done the, the movie Spice World. But I'm thinking, well, you know what? Luck of the draw. I had my five minutes of fame and now I really need to have a career. I completed the MBA and got my first foot in the door with a PR agency that called me to come and get be an intern. And I realized I loved it. 
I loved, loved, loved media relations. And that's how it started. And that got me into the foot of the door being in the, the sort of earned media industry. I carried on for a good 16 plus years in pure PR and then had the extreme luck of being headhunted by Ogilvy, uh, moved over to Ogilvy. And that is, in fact, where I met Stuart, Stuart Smith who ultimately became my global boss, and I was his right hand, becoming chief growth officer for Ogilvy PR. And that career just sort of took off, really. And then I moved from what, what I loved was being in, in an earned media role, it then moved into an integrated role. So I started to look after the portfolio of earned, owned, paid, and shared agencies within our network. And that built my career in terms of expanding my portfolio experience. And that took me into now Virtue, which is part of Vice Media Group Wow! in the media publishing space. Okay. So is there footage of you in the boy band? Is there footage <laughs> yes. of you online? Because I know our listeners are inevitably going to go search to, to find some of this archive footage of Suresh literally dropping the mic with the Spice Girls. So does this, ex <laughs> does this exist? Absolutely exists. And it didn't exist originally because it was 1996. So you can imagine YouTube wasn't big then. Wow. I'm of the generation that really has seen the biggest technological shift. Yep. It started where I, it didn't exist, but one of my closest friends recorded it on those big chunky VHS tapes and in a period also transferred it to a digital file. So there is a digital file on YouTube. And I'll tell everybody the name of the band was God Created Man. Okay. Uh, it was an awful name. And I joke <laughs> that he swiftly destroyed them six days later. Um, but it, the name of the band was God Created Man. And the name of the song was Girls. And we were launched in Popcom, P-O-P-K-O-M-M in Cologne, Germany. And there is a video of me performing on stage. That's great. So along the way, because I mean, now, you know, sitting at, you know, head of growth for Virtue, a really interesting brand, which I do want to get into, you know, along the way, though, you learned this language of driving growth, of actually making big opportunities a reality, doing big deals. You've gotten to touch some just epic brands that we had some listed here. I mean, you've just gotten to do some amazing things. What was the foundation that you started cultivating this ability to get into these conversations? Because to me, you're moving large scale things forward. And you came into the space from this entertainment you know, background, which is awesome. But what started giving you the chops and the table stakes to be able to do growth at the scale that you're doing it now? Where did you learn that? Personally, it's a combination of two very important things, and they work hand in hand. My number one passion is people really understanding people, getting to understand people, getting to know people. And ironically, I'm actually an introvert, but I'm an introverted extrovert. So I, I love to expel energy by getting to know people, etc. But to regain my energy, I need my alone time. The fundamental thing to growth is building relationships. Through those relationships, you find out what people are concerned about, what's keeping them up at night, etc. And maybe it's innate. I like to find ways to solve things. I'm a problem solver. And so when I'm speaking to a CMO or a CEO or chief communications officer, what's keeping them up at night and then you know learn those things and then find a way. If I can't solve them, I'll find connections in industry to go, you know what, you should talk to X, Y, and Z. But more often than not, what I'd love to do is find a way that how can I help and how can my team come together and help? So I think on the one hand, the first pillar is really knowing relationships, building relationships, knowing them inside out and being a trusted counsel and companion, right? On the other hand, is also understanding culture. And this is where I think my own personal interests 
stemming from my background in music, understanding what's actually in the cultural zeitgeist, what's happening in the cultural zeitgeist, and how to stay relevant in that conversation. Often you will find brands' biggest challenges is actually how do they keep up with what's happening in culture? And that's the biggest proposition within Virtue. Our main proposition is inside culture, and we're inside marketers helping brands get inside culture. So this for me was just like, oh God, this is a marriage made in heaven. It just makes the job so much easier. Okay, well, that leads to, to really a good segue of like, tell us about Virtue, this creative agency that's born from, from Vice Media, big presence in over 20 countries, a lot of award-winning campaigns. If you go to their, I spent 30 minutes today looking at some incredible campaigns that you guys have been a part of. Tell us about Virtue and your role there as, as head of growth. It's my current home and it's a home I've loved to have built over the last year and a bit. So Virtue is the creative agency powered by Vice Media Group. A lot of people will probably know Vice Media Group. It's the original millennial digital publishing brand. It was very renegade when it started. It really has a different tone. It actually reflected what was happening with the millennial culture. We're about, forgive me for getting this number wrong, but about 25 or 30 years old in between that. And we started the Young Millennials. That's where our origins were. We were the renegade brand and the way we reported and talked about the world. And even if you look up on our Instagram feed and Vice News, for example, or our TikTok feed, you will see how we talk about, this seems like an old term, but citizenship journalism. It's literally journalistic prowess that's literally on the street. What's the beat on the street? It's very real. It's very gritty. And that is the essence of culture. It's about being right in those communities. A number of years back, so I think about 12 or 15 years back, Virtue was born from that because we were talking to a lot of the brands and realized a lot of them didn't know how to communicate with the audiences that they were trying to focus on, which was the millennials. And today, we obviously, we've evolved with that. We still own the millennial conversation. We have that as a core base, but we have a growing base of Gen Zs and ongoing Gen Alphas as well. And we are preeminent in the Gen Z space as well. What has been really special about this is being able to work in an organization that has a real deep insight into an audience that a lot of brands are trying to connect with. So if we think about the generation that over time will probably be much less, which is the baby boomers, et cetera, how do brands actually engage with millennials? How do brands engage with Gen Zs and Gen Alphas? And we seem to be leading, we are leading from that front. And you know, particularly because from the editorial side of the business and all that intelligence and understanding what makes the reader tick, we have that insight into what makes them tick. And that powers the engine, that what we call the predictive engine of culture within virtue. And that helps us build brand platforms for clients that connect with audiences who are either millennials or Gen Zs or Gen Alphas. And that's a unique proposition within Virtue. We are also the only creative agency at the heart of a digital media publishing business. There is no other creative agency that sits at the heart of this. So that's a unique proposition from our side. Wow. And just to me, you've got to be able to source so much innovation and creativity that way by having, like you said, access to what's relevant in all these different generations and segments. And so what a cool, what a cool value prop to be able to share with brands that want to get their ear to the ground, you know, and and through Vice, I mean, wow, no better preeminent leader exists in that space. They, they do, in my opinion, own that. That's beautiful. Virtue appears to have like a lot of really interesting accounts. There's an interesting range. It seems like there's a, a focus on kind of maintaining the, the young perspective when it comes to like campaign ideas. Is that always going to be a focus on that younger perspective? If so, 
you know, you talked about the other generations as well, but what's the mix look like there um, on, on how you're focusing on some of these, yeah, these demographics? I want to clarify when we when I talked about the the demographics millennial gen Z gen alpha we don't just it's not necessarily just about the age group but it's about the mindset right the shifting mindset so like I often talk about we will totally engage a 74 year old who is absolutely on TikTok who loves TikTok because that's the youth culture the youth culture doesn't mean a 17 year old who's into TikTok youth culture can be an 80 year old who's big on TikTok because TikTok is youth culture. That's the shifting culture we see today. The media platforms and the, 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 or rather just general platforms that consumers are engaging in. How do we keep abreast and ahead of that? And that for me is where we help brands really navigate. So uh, I don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Obviously, before you go become a CEO somewhere, because that's what I see happening for you is you're going to go run something. That's my vision. I think it's going to be a reality at some point. Putting it out in the universe, Jeremy. Before, before that happens... You know, someone like you is so valuable for someone that leads marketing at, at a brand, you know, so someone who's accountable to growth for an organization. Talk about the relationship between someone that's that's head of growth and someone that's a CMO and and the balance and how you align and build trust there. Maybe give us an example of, you know, something that you saw work really well. Again, you've you've touched some amazing, some amazing brands, but talk about that because that to be that partnership, especially now someone head of growth, someone that's head of marketing, they, they have to dance well these days. And so I'd love just to hear your, your lessons learned and maybe a story around how that's worked for you. I give a lot of credit to my background in PR for this. For the, as I mentioned, the first 16 years of my 24 years in this industry has been pure earned media, pure PR agency. And I started in PR. I, I didn't actually start as a business development person. I actually started the first six years as the person pitching the story. Finding the angle, I had a black book of journalists who are all now feature editors and editors of newspapers today. We're still sort of connected. The gem of it is how do I find the kernel of an idea that appeals to three or four different major publications and how is it going to be different? You know, how does the same facts become very different for publication A? Let's talk about the Daily Mail, the Guardian, or, you know, the Daily Express in the UK, right? How does my one story carve up into three different ways and three different readership and three different journalists who have got three different sort of viewpoints? So for me, the biggest thing I need to know is actually understand the journalists understand what makes that journalist tick, what's really going to trigger for that journalist, and then through that, build the right story and narrative for their readership in order for that story to have relevance. And so that one campaign can have so many bites because we can look at it in different ways. The beauty of that is really understanding the, the journalist. So when I, when I was then asked to move into new business, because I seem to have had a natural knack for it. I love the thrill of the chase. I love finding a new project. When a project ended, I'll just go after and say, well, we've got this accumulated knowledge on something. And I remember I did a lot in financial services. So I had this accumulated knowledge on annuities. And when a project ended, I just went after another brand without the permission of the bosses. And, <laughs> and you know, I just thought, great, I'm being proactive. I'm going to go look for something. And I did. And when I sort of brought the lead to them, they went, you know what, you really have a natural knack for this. Why don't you look at caretaking new business for a few months? I did so. And it transform the new business pipeline because suddenly the teams were working on projects that they were really interested in, really relevant because I had the PR lens on it. I understood what's keeping the client up at night. I understood what was keeping us at night and I could make that marriage work. Taking that analogy to where my relationship as the CRO and the CGO, right? So it's the chief revenue, chief growth officer, sort of similar in, in remit and the CMO, what's keeping the CMO up at night. 
my job is to find out what's keeping the CMO up at night. And within my role, I, my role encompasses marketing, communications, and growth. So I have a business development team, I have a PR team, and I have a marketing team, and all three need to work cohesively together. My job is to pull together the right solution that's keeping that CMO up at night. And that is ultimately knowing the skill set of my team. As I did, if I go back to the PR analogy is, I needed to know how we could, as a PR team at that point, answer a client's brief, find the right angles for an earned media story. In the same way when a CMO today comes to me, look, this is what my brand problem is. And again, I go back, I talk about two pillars initially, which is relationship building and culture. In the same way, my number one focus is building a relationship with the CMO. It's not where they intend to just go and win business. I actually am interested. I'm interested in brands and where brands want to go. And I'm interested in what's, you know, ultimately what the CMO needs to deliver for their role. Ultimately, there are two things. It's for the brand, but also for the CMO's own career. They're doing this for their own sort of benefit of their own ambitions as well. How can I actually help both? And then coming back to my base cam and go, well, you know what? My first job in any role is always get to know all my people. Jokes aside, I always talk about I'm a pimp of people. That's my number one job. I sell people. And if I don't know who my people are and what they can do, then I can't sell anything. So my job is to really get to know my team. And so when a specific CMO comes to me and has a challenge, I go, you know what? I will need McTee. I'll need Jameson. I'll need specific individuals because I know what their pedigree is. I know what makes them tick. And I know how they will perform in that room because I've seen the magic with them. And then my job is to then build the growth funnel that supports that function to answer that brief. Wow. Earlier today, we had a gentleman by the name of Michael Diamond on, on the show. He's the former CMO for Time Warner and currently a professor at NYU teaching marketing and PR. And we talked about the similar train of thought, which you shared, which is this modern day marketing growth leader that comes onto the scene with this marketing and PR lens. They bring both to the table. This goes back to why what I think sets you up for a really cool experience as a CEO is you understand the growth, the marketing and the PR and the comms. It's like to have that understanding to me is what we're going to probably see being more common in the future. It's not there yet, but it just it's interesting to see that's what's happening. We're seeing this this modern day marketing growth leader stepping onto the scene with this perspective that you have and they can lead strategy across these different areas which ultimately does so many things like drive growth and culture internally and externally see the, the impact being made. Um, and it seems like that's really benefited you as well. 100% absolutely has. Something I feel like I could talk with you about forever is story and storytelling and just the art of the pitch and the art of, you know, something I can tell about you is you love the story. You love authentically communicating this in a way that also drives revenue and drives growth. So I just want to know you like, what is, what is Suresh's approach to, the story to to a pitch to bringing something that you hear on the street to life for a huge massive brand like a coca-cola or all these other brands that you've worked with like talk about that a little bit and how yeah how how that informs your storytelling and just how you connect with others this is going to sound so cheesy but it is the truth i mentioned that i'm a singer songwriter that's where my passions are and i write my own lyrics and in part of that it's a big part of lyric writing to the melody is storytelling. You're telling a story through the song. What I've always doubled down on, and again, it, it goes back to our most basic human nature. Go back to you know, days of cavemen. What they did was they sat around a campfire and they told stories. That's the biggest form of entertainment. When you're sitting around a dinner table, what's most engaging is storytelling. 
connecting on a personal level. And I've actually just just before this meeting, the reason I was running late was I actually was in a presentation with the client. And that connection came over lunch, we were talking about our children, and we were talking about various things. And then for some reason, the conversation led into a conversation about culture. And I went, you know what, we need to talk because this is what we do. And, and it was just such a natural progression. So for me, I never like to approach a pitch as a almost like a medicated solution. Oh, here's your business problem. Do A, B, and C. Because people connect much more on a personal level. What is the personal story in this that I need to help solve? And I often find, and this goes back to, again, the two pillars, relationship building and culture. Often, a lot of what's actually not written in the brief is what's the most triggering points for the CMO or the decision maker. And part of the job of me and myself as a chief growth officer is getting to know the client and find out what's actually the unwritten part of the brief that triggers a very human approach. And everything, every storytelling, every sort of pitch or every opportunity we have with the client is a storytelling opportunity to really connect on a human level. And I often play the client. Like if I were the client in the room, how is this going to come across? Is there a sense of humanity that's being sort of uh, delivered in this? Uh, at the same time, it's literally just fostering, ensuring that there's a fantastic chemistry in the team that I've pulled together because that magic speaks for itself. Literally, that's part of the tapestry of the storytelling. The chemistry of our own team in a room, do, do they connect? Do they all believe in the same thing? Do, do they come across as believable in that way? But just amazing group of, of people who are together and, and clients fall into that. Like they really fall for people that think, you know what, I can really work with these people. And often as we all know, number one decision in a lot of pitches is chemistry. I like the people. And I will never forget this. One of my former clients who's now a good friend used to lead global comms, in fact, for Nissan and went on to Jaguar Land Rover. And I remember after we won the pitch for Nissan back in the UK, and this is in the early 2000s, I'd ask for feedback, right? And I don't just want to know feedback when we lose. I want to know feedback when we win. Like, why did we win? What is it that stood out? Because you met three, four agencies. Like, what is it that stood out? And she was very honest with me. And she goes, you know what? To be honest, you had the third best idea. You, had the, you didn't have the best idea. You had the third best idea. But with every agency they met, they did one thing. And there was about seven people, seven people on the client side. Literally, they said, well, if it hits the fan, everything goes wrong. Who of each group of people that we had seen wow. would we still go down to the pub and have a drink with and work things out? And they realized the funnest group they met was us. We were very transparent. We were very honest. Uh, and we were ourselves. We had a really brilliant time in the room. We enjoyed our own company. We enjoyed our team. We enjoyed the camaraderie with the client. And that was the feedback that won us. They said, you're the only people we felt we could actually do good work and collaborate. And when things go wrong, we could still go and share a drink. And that was an important measuring point. And I never forgot that. In fact, three and a half years later, when we were both playing my piano in my living room, having just had a big dinner together, I realized that's what it, I'm not saying that every client ends up being close friends, but it, that was the measure of a relationship. And that comes down to being able to connect on a human level and that comes through the storytelling. I think that's the element that I think is important within storytelling. That's so interesting. Yeah, because you know you're going up against some major, well-versed, really smart, brilliant people who are maybe even saying similar things and they've got this opportunity to make a decision have you ever thought about it like engineering chemistry based on what you've done in your career? I know that you have the ability to 
step into a, a meeting and actually engineer chemistry, like make it happen. It seems like you're not just entering into a meeting trusting, okay, well, let's hope like things are going to go well. You've got a history of doing this repeatedly. How do you think about engineering chemistry when you engage with, again, some of these really interesting executives across the Fortune 500 and beyond? can't believe I'm saying this, but this goes back to my boy band days. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. You go on stage, you don't know whether they're going to like you or not. You're going to have to engineer the moment. You've got to own the moment. And I think it's just come with practice, to be honest, Jeremy. It's this, you walk in the room and it's so important when you walk in the room, it's a performance. It's an absolute performance and be absolutely rehearsed. But you walk in and the way, like for me, I always keep a very tight team in the room. When you, if you have 15 people walking in the room, it's very difficult to connect. When you have four or five people, clients latch. And as you know, it's identifiable. There are five people there and I know the five. Each one of us has a role. You do your homework. You know who you're going to be in the room with. Learn those individuals. Find out a little about, about them. Find out little things about their own personal anecdotes, where they live, how many children they have, etc. Because you may have common bonds in that. I mean, you can never tell until you're in the room physically because you don't know what the individual has gone through that day. They may have had a really difficult morning. They've come into the room really frosty, et cetera. How do you lighten the mood, et cetera? Difficult to tell until you're actually physically in the room. But what you can do is do your best to actually map everything out before you're physically in that room. Part of that is also spending not just don't wait to the moment to, to pitch to actually get to know your clients. I often try to build multiple touch points so that when we walk in the room, we're no longer strangers. We feel like we've already been working together. And it just feels like, well, hold on, I'm just going to, this is like the endorsement moment because I actually really like these people. I've been spending so much time with them. So for me, that's all part of the engineering, but I don't like to use the word engineering because it's never done. Perhaps it is done on purpose, but I can never answer a brief or help a client until I really get to know them. And so maybe that's the engineering process. I've never put the science behind it, but it's much more around how do I get to know them as people? How do I get to know them as humans and connect on that level? Because that's when magic happens, right? And I want my teams to connect with the, the, the prospects and the clients on a human level as well. So for me, if that is part of the engineering process, then yes, that's how I approach it. Let's shift into just kind of just favorite campaigns, favorite moments. And I know you can draw from a really awesome career. Let's stick to your time at Virtue, reflecting on the past you know, year and change that you've been a huge part of building that, that brand. What's been kind of some kind of like, you know, these moments where it's like, yes, like this is why I leaped at this opportunity and talk us through some of the, maybe a campaign and some of the results or some of the interesting things you saw in a moment that you're really proud of in your, at your time at Virtue? Whilst I've only been here, but just over a year and a half, there's like so many pieces of work that I love, right? Because everything is so culturally relevant. Pick out a few. Actually, I'll pick out two. The first one is Logitech. Um, Logitech, as you may know, is a huge Swiss consumer tech hardware manufacturer. So mice, keyboards, web streaming cams, et cetera. So very functional, right? It's a utilitarian brand. It's very functional. And what they didn't have was actually brand love. They were really struggling with brand love because everybody had their products, but people didn't know that they had their products. So they had a very different... If you think about Apple, Apple had a persona. So you know you have an Apple mouse. You know you have an Apple Mac. But a lot of consumers didn't realize they had a Logitech keyboard, didn't realize they had a Logitech mice until they looked at it and went, oh my God, I actually do have one. And and so it was a very, the way consumers purchased was very functional. So when we got the brief, and again, it was so amazing to work with a visionary CMO, 
she had just taken the role and she had this amazing vision about where the brand needed to go. And, and we had to build this master brand love. That meant revisiting what it meant to be a brand like Logitech Entities consumer uh, set. And a lot of that came down to, and I was passionate about this because being a creator myself, being a musician, one thing we realized is there was a lot of people who were doing amazing things with Logitech products, whether they're a DJ, you know, coding through the keyboard, whether they're a creator, Instagram or a social media creator using the streaming cams, etc. Don't let the brand tell the story. Let the creators tell the story. Let them go out and evangelize and tell your story and give the tools because you've already given them the tools. Give them the, the platform to tell your story and like how they've built their own personalities as a result. And what I particularly loved about it is, again, with a visionary CMO, and she's a formidable black woman in a tech business, like you can think about how rare that is as it is. Uh, and she and I share real passion about how do we just increase diversity in this world and tell you know the stories of brands in a very different way. And one of the big things we double down on is how do we bring a diversity lens to all of this, which also happens to be a very big pillar for Logitech. Logitech is doubling down on, you know, it's a very, very diverse business, but they've yet to tell that story. And so we're going to tell it through a big global brand campaign. And so we rolled out the first uh, sort of anthem spot with, with Lizzo. As you know, Lizzo is a force of her own, you know, a massive advocate in terms of body positivity. So we started with her. Then we had this raft of amazing creators, people like Bretman Rock, who's a fashion beauty guru. And in, in fact, I think has like 18 million followers on TikTok. And people like Danuk, who is a DJ, who DJs music through code using a keyboard, right? And she uses Logitech keyboard. It's not that we found these people and gave them Logitech products and go, okay, please tell our story. They were literally using this as part and parcel of their lives. And we just found them. We went out, we found them, and we found them because of Vice, because we understood what was happening in culture. We knew how, who these cultural influences are. We went out, tapped this amazing network, pulled it together, and brought to life this amazing platform called Defy Logic. So for me, that was a great way to go out in the world in a really big way, telling a, the story of a very functional product, but in such an interesting, diverse lens, and brought it to life in such an amazing way. In fact, just come back from Cannes, where we, we had an amazing uh, week at Cannes Lions. The final day, we closed Can with a panel with Bretman Rock, um, Nigel, who's the CMO, and Chris Garbutt, who's our global chief creative officer, on the strength of the creator economy and how brands have a responsibility to really empower the creator economy. And we also then petitioned for a new creator economy category at Can. And Can is very open to that conversation, right? So we've instigated that with Virtue and Logitech. Up until now, they've been awarding creatives for the works that creators were doing. And we've actually just launched our first creator director role in Logitech with Bretman. And we're now petitioning for a creator category at Can as well, which Can is very open to talking about. So that's, that's one campaign where we've driven change. And the other one I have to say is the most recent piece of work, which swept the board at Can, which is our Backup Ukraine uh, campaign. In full transparency, Backup Ukraine was a pro bono campaign. We were just driven by the passion of what was happening there and the team, kudos to the team. And again, being a very global agency, we literally, people from all over the world who wanted to participate, a lot of this was led out of a team in Europe, just came up with a brilliant idea. We partnered with UNESCO and Polycam. Beautiful. 
the idea was actually quite simple. We all have a, an iPhone. An iPhone has a 3D mapping technology with Polycam. You download it. And one thing we realized is, again, going back to the fact that we are an organization that moves at the speed of culture, one thing that gets immediately lost when something really forsaken like war happens is culture. Culture gets deleted. Literally just by physical buildings and, and you know things in your streets, et cetera, heritage monuments, et cetera. So just came up with this idea of using your iPhone and Polychem technology for people who are on the ground. We dropped about 20,000 phones in the country and we just got the locals to go around and scan just monuments and you know pieces of history and heritage in the country with the intent that even if it gets destroyed in the war, we get to upload all of that. Once it's all fully scanned, it gets uploaded into the cloud where no war can ever touch it or delete it. And the idea is it allows that culture to rebuild itself once the war passes, which is very unfortunate. It was just a very moving campaign. And like it just made so much sense on how we actually could bring something back to society and community by connecting it directly with culture uh, and technology in this instance. So those two come to mind immediately. There's obviously so many more. We work with Planned Parenthood, no need to say how emotional that is as it is. So there's a lot on our side. That's amazing. I mean, I saw, I did see the Defy Logic one. It is, it's, it's sexy. It's got sizzle. It's, it's well done. And Backup Ukraine is the next one on my list. I'll check that one out. But it sounds like that's a just another captivating piece. Uh, Suresh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are you know very important to you, uh, also to me and and our team here at Mission. Can you talk about you know why this is so important to you, and also like what can other leaders do to really make a, an impact in, in these areas where they work? For many years, I felt like an you know what they call imposter syndrome on this. I never really thought about diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly in my career in the UK. Although in hindsight, I realized how much I should have done and didn't do. The truth of it is it all sort of came to light. My commitment to DE and I really started when I moved to the US. Because right up to the point of moving to the US, I never really felt different. Although when I look back now, there's so many instances where there was very clear discrimination or racism, but I sort of joked about it or and I colluded, right? And I, I absolutely colluded because I didn't do anything about it. In fact, when I was teased about being an Indian, little Indian tea boy, I would joke about being, yeah, that's me, Chawala. I was part of that problem and, and it just exacerbated. I'm just going, you know, that's part and parcel of culture. But when I came here and I had people actively moving away from me during flights, asking for me to be moved away from them or them moving away from me, that's when I felt, wow. Like, you know, I'm thinking like, and I don't mean this in an egoistic way, but I'm an educated man who's lived in three different continents in the world and I don't see myself as a threat. Why would others, right? And it started to really beg the question, like, who am I? And I remember being invited to TED in 2019, and I was so taken by something Hannah Gadsby, who's the Australian comedian, and she got up and she presented and her, her literally her opening lines, what is the purpose of my human? And it literally that triggered it for me. What is the purpose of my human? In 2016, I was approached by the Financial Times they were putting together a list of the top LGBTQ executives around the world. I was, I never really taken a moment to come out, but I was whenever people asked anything, I was out. I was, you know, obviously, I was very open about being gay. 
And I didn't come out just for context until my mother died. So I was 35. So it was the two days after my mother died that I came out. And all of that realization came to me. And they approached me three times to say, look, we'd like you to put your name in and you have to actively submit it. They basically came and said to me, we'd like to actively ask you to put your name into this for consideration because we're pulling together the top 100 around the world and we'd like you to consider. We'd love to consider you. I declined it twice because of this imposter syndrome. Like, I've not really done anything here. I, I, I was doing a lot of grassroots level work, but nothing that garnered attention. And the third time they said, well, okay, we're not asking you now, we're telling you to put your name in the list because technically the list already exists. Because again, because of GDPR and and privacy issues, I needed to have opened up myself. And so I did. And what I thought was going to be an embarrassing moment turned out to be a really humbling moment, to be honest. When the list came out, and I think, I'll never forget this, uh, the first year I was number 64. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is a bit embarrassing. I'm out and like, I don't like being in the, despite being in a boy band before, I'm not really into the limelight thing. What was humbling about it is what it meant to others. And the amount of other people, I was at Ogilvy at this point, the amount of other people at Ogilvy who struggled with coming out because of the communities they lived in, whether they were Muslim, they were black, and they struggled and they saw like, well, hold on, I've got one of my really senior leaders, C-suite leaders, being very open about it. It didn't mean that they all just went out and suddenly started coming out. They felt they had somebody to relate to and they all reached out to me. And that's when I learned the humble pie, like, oh my God, this is not about me. This is about what others could do because of what I do. And that was the start, to be honest, Jeremy. Like I went, well, if, if this one small thing has led so much change, what more can I do to address this? Because I was seeing very clear discrimination. And I went through it myself, right? And so many instances where, like, there's even one year where, and I won't name the organization, but the CEO, we went to Can Lions, and there were six or seven of us, and I was the only one asked to sleep in the servants' quarters, and I was the only person of color. And I wasn't like, you know, everybody had a first dips, whoever arrives get first dips in the apartment, and there was six bedrooms and seven of us, uh, but only three were taken. But I was designated the servants' quarters downstairs. And to add to it, I'll be very direct, like it was an awful experience, which meant I was separated from the rest of the group who were all white, by the way. I was the only person of color. And on the penultimate day, someone decides to actually take a number two in the toilet that was designated for the servants' quarters and left it there. And I didn't know what to think. Like, is this how you behave? Like, is this what it means to be? a business leader in this world. And I realized there's so many things that are so wrong. What I try to do is lead that change from the very top. It starts with the responsibility at the very top. So even right now in virtue, one of the things I double down on is, do we have that lived experience representation at that table? Whose voice is missing? Mm-hmm. So when you look at a campaign and one of the things, like I, I talked about Planned Parenthood before, and one of the things we committed to Planned Parenthood particularly commit, sort of is focus on Latina and Black women, because that's the most affected group in this instance. And one thing we wanted to make sure is, do we have the point of view and lived experience of Black women and Latina women in the team? Because otherwise, what are we doing? We had an amazing number of BIPOC talent in our business. We got easily poached because wow. everybody needed BIPOC talent when you know what virtue has all of them. Just go for them. So we literally got poached and ransacked. And so we had to rebuild the team. 
And I had a conversation with the client. I said, look, you have to bear with us because they came and poached everybody. And we're not only just going to hire women. We're going to have to hire women who bring the representation of Latina and Black sort of lived experiences because that's the point of view we need. We're not going to try and retrofit this. It's going to have to be authentic. And so one of the biggest things I commit myself to is driving this change from the very top, bring in the lived experience so that we tell stories of the world. So when we launched the Logitech campaign, for example, the number of BIPOC talent that were in the campaign fronting the brand that covered the spectrums of race, gender, sexuality, ability, and age was across all of it, because that's what authentic storytelling is. And that's representative of the world. So what I try to do is be representative of the world that I would love to live in. And so I try to do that in my leadership. That's fantastic. That was just just well, well, well done at Severest. That was just beautiful. And, and I see how now you're personal experience really informs the impact that you're that you're making at virtue so such an honor um let me give a quick shout out to our sponsor salesforce thank you yeah because we use salesforce <laughs> <laughs> okay nice so on that note shout out to you salesforce we know that you bring marketing and engagement together so if you're interested to learn more head over to salesforce.com forward slash marketing suresh this was just an epic conversation man thank you so much for being a part of marketing trends and best of luck to you. Let's do this again next year. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.